as you, uh, if you've been here and you've been following along with our sermons, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount and we're getting near the end and actually there's, the end is, you know, Jesus is doing some summaries at the end. He's, he's, he's sometimes doing it with just one, um, one sentence and sometimes he's using another story, but, but he's doing what a good teacher does. A good teacher doesn't just say it and expect you to get it, but there's the repetition of these key ideas again and again. And so we find this at the end. And, um, and why have we been going through this? Well, again, just as a reminder, we're, you know, we're interested in what it means to be a healthy church. We want to be a healthy church. Um, otherwise, it's kind of pointless for us to even be here. Um, we're here to want to know what God wants us to be, what he's calling us to be, what he's making us to be. And as we've talked about, a healthy church is a community, but it's not just any community. It's a community of disciples. It doesn't mean that there can be people that are hanging around and coming and benefiting who aren't disciples. They may just be wanting to know more, or maybe they're kind of in a transition in their lives. But, but it is. It's a community of disciples. Essentially, that's what the church is. And then we talked about what is a disciple, and a disciple is, is someone who is learning, acquiring knowledge, learning, but learning in such a way that the Spirit is meeting that learning in their lives, and they're becoming more like Christ. And so two things should be happening to us at all times. We individually should be changing to become more like Christ, but we as a church should also continually become more like Christ. Well, I'm going to talk about a Bible verse today that comes up, you know, it's just right there in Matthew 7, that a lot of people think they, they get it, they know, they see golden rule, and they know, I know the golden rule, and everybody's kind of heard the golden rule. Um, but as we've found with the last three or four sermons, this, what people think these messages are about what Jesus is trying to communicate is really not what they're about. And the reason they come into this problem is because they have the problem of taking the scripture away from the context and just using the words without context. Context is hugely important. If I were to tell you that ever since the Shine Fine Arts program in June, that my wife has become fond of vodka. If I said that, it's true, she has. You might think we should pray for her Shine was so stressful that she suddenly became, you know, fond of vodka. But she actually learned somehow that vodka is a, cleans things. It's a magical cleaning thing. So if you smell alcohol on me sometimes, although vodka is not supposed to be an odor, it's because she's trying to clean my shirts or make them not stink so badly. But without context, you have no idea what that sentence is about. We don't know. We need context. But people like to take certain sayings, certain ones out of the Bible and forget context. Don't even think about context. And of course the golden rule is one of those that's so common, so familiar because just about every religion, every philosophy, every culture has a version of the golden rule. In fact, uh, there's a great American philosopher uh, known as the Wizard of Id and the Wizard of Id has his, anybody remember Wizard of Id? Am I the only one who remembers this? You guys remember? The cartoon used to be in the Sunday papers all the time. Um, I didn't know at the time, I just thought it was funny, but it was apparently a 
a parody of uh, American society. But he says, remember the golden rule, and if you see the guy down there, he says, whoever has the gold makes the rules, right? And that's, again, some people thinking about golden rule. What is a golden rule? And decontextualizing it. You know, they can make it really mean whatever they want. And what happens is people hear the golden rule and they hear like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And here's what they think. What they think is, is they think that the Bible, they think that Jesus is validating this way of living. That the best way to live is to leave each other alone. Really, that's the, that's the takeaway that a lot of people get. The best way to live is to leave each other alone. Just don't bother each other. Unless I ask you to. You know, really don't bother each other. My, you know, my wife has a couple of questions that she asks almost every day. One of them is, do you smell that? And then the other one is, is there something in my teeth, right? And because I love her, if she asks me if there's something in her teeth, I tell her. If I didn't love her and there's a big old thing of spinach in her teeth, I'd be like, ah, looks good, right? Move on, right? But we get this mentality that, that Jesus is validating our culture, which is, leave me alone. Just let me live my life however I want. Just leave me alone. I'm not hurting anybody. And they interpret the golden rule that way. And really, that's only because they've decontextualized it. Jesus is summarizing. He's summarizing the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount has all been about living in the kingdom. How do we live in the kingdom? How do we live as disciples? What do we do? What do we think? What is our attitudes? He's been going through that. And again, I invite you that if you kind of miss this, if you just um, either missed it, actually missed it by not being here, or just missed it, you were here, but you didn't understand it, go back. You have the advantage of technology now. Go back. Listen to the recordings of the sermons. And you're going to hear again and again what Jesus is trying to say. This is what disciples do. This is what healthy church is. This is what my kingdom is all about. So, we come to this, this text in um, verse 12, where it says, it's chapter 7, verse 12. It says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, uh, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it uh, by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You see, the problem with that treat people the way you want to be treated is that it leaves everything in your hands. If someone wants to be treated like a princess, do you think they're going to be treating everybody else like a princess? No. It's kind of a one-way thing of, I know how I want to be treated. You treat me that way. But what if that person doesn't want to treat you that way? We, we get this generalized idea. We go, oh, Matt, of course it's not talking about that. What this is talking about is just respect one another. Be kind. Don't judge one another. That's what it means. In other words, kind of leave each other alone and be nice, nice. Well, if you're a disciple of Christ, 
and we understand this in context, the question should be this. Not how do you want to be treated, but how should a disciple of Christ want to be treated? How should you want to be treated if your focus is on the kingdom? The entire message of the Sermon on the Mount has been on the kingdom. Why would it change here? Why would he just pull out some general rule here that we can then interpret however we want? He wouldn't. Even if you believe what some New Testament scholars might believe, that this is not just one sermon, this is several sermons, even if you believe that, Matthew still put them all together as though they're one sermon. He's saying, don't try to understand the golden rule without understanding the context that this sermon is about the kingdom. So we have to understand it. How should someone who's a disciple want to be treated? Because in the church, that's how we should treat one another. That's how we should want to be treated, even if there's part of us that doesn't always welcome it. What we should want is to be treated in a way that helps us become stronger in our faith. We should want to be helped in a way that helps us as a, as a church be stronger. We should want to be, to, to, to be treated in such a way that God is better glorified in our kingdom. That's what we should want. So if I understand that in that context, changes everything. It's not just, I have to think about how I would want to be treated. No. How should I want to be treated? And so from last week, you know, we, we, we talked about that, that once you know what the kingdom is, once you know what the kingdom is, if you're a disciple and you know what the kingdom is, you will, you will long for the kingdom. You will, you will become weary if the kingdom is, is not happening when you want it to happen. You, you would also seek the kingdom. You would ask, seek, knock. It would, be, it would be an active thing. You would pursue the kingdom. There's, there's not this passive waiting for the kingdom to come to me. And if, you, if you're a disciple and you really know what the kingdom is, you are going to demonstrate patience and perseverance. You're, you're not just going to give up when it gets hard. You're not going to give up when, when the church isn't moving fast enough and becoming what you want it to be fast enough. You know, sometimes, you know, you've heard this phrase, ignorance is bliss. And there's some truth to that. There's some truth that if I don't know what lies ahead, and I don't know how hard it's going to be, or if I don't know how good it can be, if we get it right, then I'll just kind of accept whatever we have now. And if that comes, great, I didn't know about it anyways. But I'm not going to be disappointed. Sometimes when I coach, like I can, I can see in a, in a runner, I can see like just such talent and potential that if they would, if they would just do some things, if they would just you know, you know, work at it, that they, they could be great. And because I can see it, and they can't see it, 
I'm kind of disappointed when they're like, ah, I'm not going to work that hard. Or, you know, I don't really need to put out my best effort. They're not disappointed because they don't see it. So when we see things, when we, the more we understand who we can be as a church, what a healthy church is, the more we get that picture in our heads, the more we need patience and perseverance. The more we have to, to say, you know, don't, don't give up. Well, we also talked about last week this idea of, of persevering, working for it, but also knowing God is going to meet us in that. And he's going to help us along the way. He's going to be there with us along the way. He doesn't promise that we get to see the finish line. We might just be someone who's going to pass the baton to the next generation. I sometimes think that's the role of my generation. I'm kind of in this weird generation where I'm not a baby boomer and I'm not a Gen X or I'm kind of in the middle. And I sometimes think that, that that little middle generation, just a couple years, you know, our job is to, is to try to make sure we pass on things to the next generation. Because the, the, the solutions are going to take too long. The things that have to happen in churches and, and the culture of churches and the mindsets of, of the churches, which have been so infected, not by Christianity, but by Western ideals, it, it's going to take a long time, long time. And maybe I don't get to see it. But I still work towards it. Well, see this golden rule. And as we said, it needs to be understood in, in context. And, and, that, and that if without it, it's just advice. And it's not even original to Jesus. So many people have said the same advice. Just about, again, any religion, any philosophy, every culture, East and West, same advice. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Don't do to others what you don't want done to you. But I don't think this is just the Christian version of this. I think it's part of the sermon for a reason. And the question that resounds is, how should we want to be treated? The two gates, when he talks about the two gates, again, a lot of ink and thinking is spent on the two gates, you know, the wide gate and the narrow gate and all of that. And, and I don't necessarily think the picture is about popularity. I think the picture is simple. It's what we've been saying all along. If we're going to try to be a healthy church, it's, it's hard. It's hard work. Think about this in, like, real life. Is it easier to sit on your couch, watch TV, and eat potato chips? Is that easier than every day going out and walking for 45 minutes? Or running? Or lifting weights? Or doing some kind of, I think, pickleball? Anybody pickleball players? You know, something active, right? Which is easier, sitting and doing nothing? Or moving? Well, sitting is easier. It's easier to not be a healthy church. It's easier just to kind of be like everybody else and just, you know, be cordial, hang together, 
ha you know, come together for some couple meetings and then go our way. That's easier. It's not healthier, but it's easier. The path to health is hard. It means we have to get out of things that we're comfortable with. We have to get off the couch where we've sat on that couch so long that there's, there's a nice groove where we sit, right? You can't sit on any other place. You've got to sit in that same place. Sometimes churches are like that. We've sat in the same pew. That pew knows us, right? Can't get out of our comfort zone. We're just so stuck. And see, that's the whole thing. When we, when we, when we think about the golden rule and we take it out of the, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, we can basically make it mean whatever we want it to mean. You can make it mean I want to be left alone. You can make it mean I want to be the center of attention. You can make it mean I don't want anyone to know about my problems. You can make it mean I want everyone to know about my problems. You can make it mean I want people to give me stuff. You can make it mean I don't want help from nobody, no how, no way. You can make it mean whatever you want because it's how you want to be treated. Totally decontextualized. You see, there's a false assumption that we all want to be treated the same way. You know in your own household that's not true. My mom and dad were polar opposites. If my mom got sick, up in the bedroom, close the door, tells nobody. If my dad got sick, living room, recliner, in the middle of all the activity, making sure everybody who knew knew how miserable he was. Right? It's different. If my dad thought my mom wanted to be treated the way he, she would have probably, uh, I might not be here. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> and vice versa. If my mom thought my dad wanted to just be left alone, it would have been terrible because he didn't want to be left alone. He wanted someone to sit there and ask him, you know, do you want something to eat? Do you need some medicine? Do you need some water? We're different. But there's a false assumption that we all want to be treated in the same way. But as Christians, our goal, especially within the church, is that we should do unto others what will help them become kingdom-focused. Even if it's hard, even if it's awkward, even if it's strange, that's what we should do. We shouldn't try to to just kind of do it all on our own. Because as we've been reminded of again and again in the scriptures, it is impossible for us to, to, to create a healthy church. We can put the efforts that God tells us to do, we can do the things, but what we want is we want his spirit to meet our efforts. And so when we look back at this, this text, when we look at that first verse, what should we want? If we want to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, what should we want them to do? And what I should want you to do for me as my Christian brother and sister in a healthy church, what I should want you to do for me is whatever it takes to help me be a better disciple. Sometimes that means telling me. Sometimes it means praying for me. Sometimes it means 
letting it sit for a while can mean a lot of different things. Sometimes it means coming alongside and helping me. Even though I don't know yet I'm being helped. It can mean all that. But that's what we should want. What we should want is that others would treat us so that we would become the best disciples. And I don't know that we always do that. I know I don't. I know sometimes I hide behind the excuse, that's not how I want to be treated. I know sometimes I just want to act like the problem's not there. But we should want to be the best disciple we can be, and we should want others to be the best disciple they can be. Our interaction is then about helping each other be disciples. That's the golden rule from Jesus. It's not however you want to be treated. It's not whatever you want it to mean. It's that we help one another. And that's hard. It's hard. We were talking about this in our Sunday school class today, that sometimes it's hard because sometimes you don't know when to push and you don't know when to step back. Sometimes you don't know when to, to say something and you, sometimes you don't know when just to be quiet and pray. And there's no guidebook. There's no rule book that says do this here and this there. And that's good. That's good because what that means is whatever I say or do, if I'm really thinking about helping you become a better disciple, I better pray about it. I better think about it. I might even need to talk to other people about it other Christians to say, do you think this is actually going to help or is it going to hurt? In other words, we need to live out our faith so that we know how to treat one another. There is no, there is no list. There is no rule book. It's just, sometimes it's better just to shut up and sometimes it's better to say something Sometimes it's better to go in and stop something from happening and sometimes it's better to let it happen. And we're going to get it wrong. That's why it's hard. We're going to get it wrong sometimes. But what we cannot get wrong is our motivation. Our motivation cannot be because I want to show I'm superior. Our motivation cannot be because I want, to, I want, I want them to know how weak they are. Our motivation cannot be to show everybody that, you know, I'm the smartest guy in the room. Our motivation always has to be, how is this helping this person become a better disciple? Which, by the way, by the way means that we actually have an understanding of what it means to be a disciple. That we ourselves are going through the process of discipleship. If we know what it means, we're more likely to help others. And so we should want others. And what I like about the way Jesus says it is he doesn't say it in the negative. He doesn't say, don't do what you don't want done. He says it in the positive. 
And what I like about that is he's saying it's active. You are, you are not just assuming everybody is got it all together. You're not assuming that everybody's in this process of discipleship. In fact, you're, you're, you're thinking about him, you're praying about him. It took me a long time to get to this point, and I still don't do it all the time. That when someone does something that offends me or hurts me or, you know, whatever it is, is to first of all pray for where they are spiritually right now. Not to say that I'm, whether I'm to blame or not, because I also need to pray about myself. But it's to pray about where they are. It's to, it's to find out, like, you know, instead of turning all the concern to myself and how their actions are affecting me, to think about them. Because you know what that does? It helps me go into the dispute, helps me to go into the disagreement, not trying to win. It helps me to go in trying to love. It helps me to go in trying to help that person become who they said they want to be and who they said they wanted to be was a disciple of Christ. So let's figure this out. Again, it won't necessarily be easy. If I say that, they're not all of a sudden going to go, oh, thank you for enlightening me. No. A lot of times it's just the beginning and sometimes it's the end. Because sometimes... What happens in our relationships is people reveal that they don't really want to be what they say they want to be. They say they want to be a Christian. They say they want to be a follower of Christ. They say they want to be a disciple. But when it comes to the part of actually walking the walk, they really demonstrate what they really want and how they really want to live. You might think, well, that's bad. Why can't we just let them continue to fool themselves? Would you really do that? Would you really do that? Would you really see someone on a path that's deadly and dangerous, but they think it's the path to fun and excitement? Would you let them keep going, or would you try to stop them? I hope you would try to stop them. I hope you would try to stop me. The last thing, when he's talking about these gates... You know, he's talking about, you know, you're not walking this path alone. There are others. And it will be hard. But we should want to be the best, the best community of disciples that we can be. We should want to be the healthiest church we can be. Understand, healthy doesn't mean perfect. In fact, a healthy church would be full. Everybody in the church is going to be imperfect. But the healthy church is all these imperfect people are on the path to becoming more like Christ. That's the difference. Nobody has stopped. Nobody has said, I got enough Jesus, don't need any more. Nobody has said, I got enough commitment, don't need any more. Nobody has said, I got enough knowledge, don't need any more. And a lot of us do this, not out of pride sometimes. Sometimes it's out of pride. We think because we know more than other people that somehow is enough, but that's not. I'll give you a confession here. Um, when we went back to Texas, I, I had, been asked, I'd, had been asked to teach a class during the summer 
on um, a New Testament. So I taught it. And the dean, he liked me, and seems like the students liked me and all that. Um, and so he, right before the, the fall semester started, he came to me and he said, um, we lost our Greek teacher. Do you teach Greek? I didn't have a job. Um, didn't know how I was going to take care of my family. So the only appropriate answer was, yes, I teach Greek, right? I had taken Greek. I kind of understood Greek. But I hadn't looked at Greek in several years because, you know, I didn't preach regularly. And so I wasn't really studying it on a regular basis. But I knew that that first semester, the main goal, stay at least a week ahead of the students, right? <laughs> That's, that was my main goal, a week ahead of the students. Because as long as I was a week ahead of the students, they all thought I was smarter than them. You know? But I wasn't fooling myself. I, I obviously, I hope, in the next you know, several years as I continued to teach Greek, I got better, and I wasn't just a week ahead. But that first semester was all survival mode. But sometimes we think because we're the smartest person in the room, we know all the important stuff, all there is to know. But sometimes it's that reason. Sometimes it's the other reason. We just don't think we can. People start talking about theology, or they start talking about the Trinity, or they start talking about the atonement, and, and we're like, hey, all I care about is God loves me, Jesus saved me, and that's good. Disciples, that cannot be good enough. We love God with all we are, including our minds. And yeah, it's hard, but it's who we are in Christ, if we really love God, we want to know, we want to stretch our brains as much as we can to know him. We should want to be the best community. See, when we help others and when others help us, when we do unto others as we should want to be done unto us, our community of faith is stronger. And the stronger it is, the more it reflects the kingdom. And the more it reflects the kingdom, the more the world takes notice and says, there's something there. Not there's something in your life or my life. There's a lot of good people in this world. But when they see a community come together, a people of all different ages, all different ethnicities, all different socioeconomic status, people from different educational levels, they can even have polar opposite political views. But they come together and they're united. They're united by something the world doesn't get. They don't understand it. How can you? possibly be part of that group, and not just part, they're like family to you. When that happens, when that happens, and it's not phony, like if they all came here, if, if you invited your friend here, and, and your friend um, came, and then everybody was like, had the same smile on their face, and they all said, hi, welcome you, brother. Right? I mean, if everybody was exactly the same, even though they kind of look different, you would think like, hmm, cult, right? 
something, something's, you know, maybe there's something in the Kool-Aid. Who knows? But something's not right here. But sometimes we do that. We, we want to pretend like Christians never argue. They never disagree. We argue. We disagree. But we work towards reconciliation. That's what we do. It's difficult. It's difficult. And, and when we miss Jesus teaching this, this whole Sermon on the Mount about the kingdom, we really miss the emphasis he places on it and the ways that we can have this happen. The closer we get, the closer we get, the harder it is. The closer we get in our personal lives as Christians, the closer we get as a church, the harder it is. Because in your personal life, you know, when you first become a Christian, a lot of times, you know, the, the, the obvious stuff, the, that, that stuff goes away. But then there's that deep-seated stuff. That stuff that you would rather not think about that still affects you. Those things you think you maybe you got rid of or you locked away and no one will ever know, but they fuel your insecurity. They fuel your anger. They fuel your fear. And because of that, you can never fully trust God. God starts dealing with those. Those are hard. And we need brothers and sisters around us when we go through those things because sometimes they can be kind of debilitating. You see, we hold on to our favorite sins, even if they're secret to us. We hold on to them because somehow they've helped us. They've helped us cope. They've helped us get through. But let me tell you this. Anything, anything that prevents us from moving toward healthier, closer, more intimate relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ it's, it's sin. And we need to deal with it. We can't deal with it all at once. It may take time. But what we shouldn't do is protect it. And we protect it with words like this. This is how I am. It's how I am. I can never change. I can never accept that person. Just understand this. Whenever you say this, take the word I out and put the word God in. God can never get me to the point of accepting someone else, accepting that kind of person. As soon as you say that, you go, ooh, wait, that doesn't sound right, because God can do anything, right? I mean, take God out and just put I back in there, because it sounds better. But we do it. We lock ourselves for whatever reason could be fear, could be we think we're a private person, could be low self-esteem, could be afraid of being embarrassed, could be we don't feel we're good enough, we're not smart enough, we don't want to say what's in our heads because we aren't convinced anybody else would really want to hear it. John writes in 1 John chapter 4 that perfect love casts out fear. 
See, when we really love God and we understand that God really loves us, then we love each other and we're willing to take the risk. I told you last week, you know, one of the big things I have a problem with when I learn languages is I never want to take the risk to talk to somebody. Never want to take the risk. And I think that's how we are sometimes. We learn a lot about Christianity. We learn a lot about what it means to, to be the church, to be a disciple. We, we, we sing the words, I surrender all. But we cannot take the risk. We don't want to be vulnerable. But let me give you this hope. That if there is sin in your life that still just grips you, if there's things that are just broken, understand this. If you have confessed and believed in Jesus as Lord, He has conquered that sin. Doesn't mean the effects don't magically, that they magically go away. The consequences, the effects are still there. But you have victory. And even when you're in that sense of, of hopelessness and despair and you feel overwhelmed, like, like there's no way. The light, the hope is Jesus Christ gave you victory. And we hold on to that victory. Again, it's not magic. Just thinking those thoughts doesn't make the feelings go away. But it helps us hold on. It helps us get to the point when we can finally let go of those things. And maybe we're going to need a lot of help. Maybe we're going to need a lot of counseling and other things that help us. But we can let go. And we can embrace the full joy of being a child of the King.